don't touch that dial. It's the American Grooves Radio Hour with your host, Joe Lauro. everybody to the American Grooves Radio Hour. Tonight's program, I'm titling, They All Played the Palace. The Palace Theater. The mecca of showbiz back in the vaudeville days. It's a vaudeville show tonight, and we'll be listening to recordings of some of vaudeville's most prized, dearest performers. People that began performing two centuries ago and went on and on until Vaudeville's demise. And some of them, like who you just heard, the last of the Red Hot Mamas, Sophie Tucker, she went on till about a week or two before she died. And her last performance was on the Ed Sullivan Show in 1966. Sophie Tucker, some of these days, uh, backed by a very much unknown band. No one could ever figure out who's playing on that record, but it's a hot band, and that was her theme song. And so many of these acts were expected to perform not only their theme song, if they had one, but whatever their act was, their 10-minute act, city to city, year to year, theater to theater. If they appeared at a theater and didn't perform the act that people knew, a lot of times it created a negative situation for them. 
People loved the repetition of it. If it was something, I mean, remember some of these acts that some of these vaudevillians had perfected were done through years and countless engagements at different theaters until they honed it down by the second. And, uh, they were expected to perform that act. And this is one of the reasons why things really shifted when radio came into play, because all of a sudden, these vaudeville people that made their way to radio, well, they had to do a completely different show every week. And the writers went absolutely berserk trying to come up with material. And many many would say that, you know, the, the power of some of these acts diminished by the fact that they had to have new material within their character, basically, week after week. All types of people performed in vaudeville. It wasn't just music. There were, you know, there were dog acts, people with trained dogs, people that were jugglers, people that whistled, and we're going to get to that later, a totally lost art. And, um, even mandolin players. And Dave Apollon, who we're going to hear right now, was a mandolin player. I believe he was a Russian fellow, and he had a band uh, of basically Hawaiian musicians that accompanied him uh, playing his amazing mandolin. And he was a comedian as well. He didn't really sing that much, but but he, he, put, he put it over not only with his virtuosity on that instrument, but the fact that he was a showman. Here is Dave Apollon in 1929, Russian Rag. Thank you. 
Not surprisingly, that record appeals to mandolin players everywhere. People like David Grisman, uh, the great mandolin player who played with Olden in the Way and and played with Stefan Grappelli and so many people. Uh, Grisman uh, totally idolizes um, Dave Apollon, and I know he's been a collector of his recordings and some of the rare short films that he made back in the day. Um, so there we have a mandolin player in vaudeville. You know, um, some of the singers went on and recorded quite a bit when the phonograph really became a viable uh, source of income for them. And um, Belle Baker... Uh, was sort of known as the female Jolson back in the day. She had a very large, emotional sort of voice, like a tear in her voice. And, um, you know, when I say loud, I mean she learned how to perform before the days of the microphone and the birth of the crooner. If it wasn't for the microphone, there would not be the crooner because no one would hear them. So people like Jolson and Bell Baker had to really belt it out and make sure that that voice was heard in the last seat of the balcony. And Bell Baker certainly could deliver that. And here she is, a little bit late in the vaudeville years, um, performing Cheer Up. Bye. 
Sammy, what did you think of the opera? Our opera, schmopper opera. There wasn't a joke in it. And the way those fellows are backing me were talking, it was terrible. One fellow was talking about his heart, one fellow was talking about his liver, another fellow was talking about his lungs. That wasn't an opera. No. That was an organ recital. <laughs> I got so mad like anything. And the way Madame Gallicucci sang. This was Gallicucci? Yes. You don't speak the truth. Oh, yeah. I thought it was Schumann-Kite. Oh. <laughs> she said he's got a beautiful voice. You bet she has. Why, do you know that she's been studying for the last 15 years and is still taking lessons? No. Yes. How can she be so dumb? Oh. Why, have you any idea what some of the great opera singers are getting? Yes, I got no idea whatever. Yes, you've no idea. Go ahead and ask me. I wouldn't believe you anyway. Well, guess. About half. Half? Half of what? Half of what you're going to tell me. No, no. Why, Gallicurse, you get $2,000 a night. A night? Yes, a night. ay ay Tito Rufo gets $2,500 a night. A night? Yes, a night. ay ay And, of course, you've heard of Charlie Oppen. Oh, sure, I read the book. You read the book? Yeah. What book? I forgot the name. Oh, I mean Shelley up in the great Russian baritone. Why, he gets $3,000 a night. A night? Yes, a night. By golly, I think I'll take a night job. You will, eh? Well, have you an ear for music? A what? I say, have you an ear for music? I don't know. Take a look and see. I got a drum in there. No, no. I mean, do you play any musical instrument? Sure. Once I had a grand piano. You had a grand piano? Yeah, but I lost it. You lost it? Mm. How can anybody lose a grand piano? I stopped payments on it. Oh, you did, eh? Well, you know the whole trouble with you, Sammy, is your education has been sadly neglected. Neglected. Yes. Listen, I went to college and I would have graduated with high honors only for one thing. What was that? The day of examination, the fellow in front of me got sick. Oh, he did, eh? Yes. Well, high in arithmetic. Fine. You are? Yeah. Well, I'm going to try you. Go ahead. How much is ten times ten? Quick. Ninety. Why ninety? Ain't you a friend of mine? Well, what's that got to do with it? I always knock off ten percent for friends. Well, Sammy, you're all right. Say, I want to take you to a party with me tomorrow night. Tomorrow night I can't go. Why not? I got to go to a wedding. A wedding? Sure. Who's getting married? I don't know. I found invitation on the street. Want to come along? It's for two. It says, Mr. and Mrs., your presents are requested. Right away with the presents. No, never mind. You come along with me. I want to take you to a christening. Christening? Yes. Have you ever been to a christening before? Sure. Many a time I saw a battleship christening. A battleship? With champagne. Oh, no, no. This is a christening of a baby. Christening of a baby? Yes. I don't want to go. Why not? Who wants to see a baby get hit on the head with a bottle? That's terrible. Ah, you come along. Of course, uh, we'll have to do something at this party. Do something? Yes. I'll eat and I'll drink and I'll drink and no, I'll eat. No, no, I mean we'll have to do something to entertain the guests. I was once on the stage. You are? Yeah, for the leading part. A leading part? <laughs> I suppose you're going to tell me that old joke. What joke? About leading a horse across the stage. Oh, no, my brother played that part. Oh, he did? Yeah. And what did you do? I let him back. Suppose they call on you, what do you do? Well, I'll sing. Let me hit a couple of notes. All right. That's all right. You ought to be with Caruso. Why, he's dead. I know it. <laughs> Willie and Eugene Howard, vaudeville darlings. They were born in Russia. I'm sorry, they were born in Germany in the 1880s, mid-1880s, and Willie, uh, the younger brother, began his career in 1901. He debuted with Anna Held, who was brought over by Florence Ziegfeld. She was a Parisian model, and Ziegfeld, uh, besides Sarnow, who was a little earlier, he brought Anna Held over from Paris and staged a review around her beauty and her charm. And Willie 
Howard uh, began uh, at the 125th Street Theater, Proctor's Theater, uh, in 1901 in an Held show. And around 1912, he, he teamed up with his brother, and they became, you know, a huge vaudeville uh, act, playing for the Schuberts, touring the country. And as you hear, it's what they would call dialect humor, character parts, character roles that they played. There were so many different ethnic groups. Uh, and a lot of these vaudeville acts adapted the dialogue of a particular ethnic group. These fellows, as I said, were born in Germany uh, and uh, they landed on the Lower East Side. So it was natural for them to take on a Lower East Side persona. And you hear it in all of their recorded acts. I mean, up to the, the Ziegfeld Follies. Willie uh, performed till about 1949 when he passed away. I think the act broke up around 1934. But anyway, Willie and Eugene Howard at the opera. That was recorded by Columbia Records in 1925. Van and Skank were uh, a top act. They were headliners for many, many years, appeared in the Ziegfeld Follies, did the Keith Albee circuit, which was the best of the vaudeville circuits, touring the country endlessly until uh, uh, Skank died very, very suddenly, I think around 1931 of, uh, I think it was a tonsillectomy that he had. Back then, that was a dangerous operation and he did not survive it. Um, Gus Van went on for years after him, but here they are, uh, right around the time they were doing The Follies, and this is one of their wonderful harmony tunes, and it is called Get Out and Get Under the Moon, a pop hit of the day. Pick up your hat, up your 
federal prisons brings your membership up to around 30,000. Will Rogers, star of the Follies from 1912 on into the early 1920s. This recording, Will Rogers Speaks to the Bankers, was made in 1923. I believe he was in one of the Follies editions at that time. Rogers was born uh, 1879. He had served in the Boer War and uh, ran away. He was a very adventurous young man. He wound up uh, with a traveling Wild West show where he was a roper. He was a lasso artist. He would perform tricks with the lasso. And shortly thereafter, he began telling jokes while he was doing it. The lasso, as amazing as he was, it kind of served in vaudeville like um, Jack Benny's violin or George Burns's cigar, where it gave them sort of a little a little distraction while they were thinking about what they were going to say or pacing themselves. And Rogers would stand on the stage of the Follies and he'd have his lariat and he would do some twirling around with it while he was doing these amazing monologues that he was, uh, he was very much known for. This next recording that I'm going to play is extremely rare. I'm told that there's only five copies of this thing known. How I got it, I don't know. But this is another part of the vaudeville world. And this is vaudeville in England. You know, a lot of African-American artists went overseas because they were not faced with the the persecution that they were faced with in the United States. They did not have to stay at special hotels for black performers only. They did not have to eat in different restaurants or go in through the back door, which was the case for so long in this country, way too long. You know, when they went over to Europe and into England, they were treated as equals And they were uh, revered for their wonderful acts. They were beloved. And the versatile four, led by Gus Haston, who who was an American uh, uh, performer, he had a little string band over in England, and they played uh, variety and vaudeville and recorded some of these amazing ragtime recordings. And I love this because it really gives you an idea what ragtime would have sounded like on stage, rather in a sterile recording situation where the standard bands that belong to the record companies and the standard singers would just perform the hits of the day. This is an actual working act recorded in England in 1916, the Versatile Four, and they're performing Circus Day in Dixie. Yeah. 
that indeed. I think it was great. That was the Versatile Four in 1916, Circus Day in Dixie. One of the great African-American groups that wound up in England to record and perform. And they actually also uh, wound up in the James Reese Europe Band during World War One, where they performed uh, for the 369th Division of the United States Army. And a lot of these musicians stayed over there and they clearly were at the forefront of the beginning of the jazz era. Versatile Four. You know, um, the Palace Theater was truly the mecca of showbiz. It was like the Dancing with the Stars of its day or the Ed Sullivan Show of the 60s and 50s. If you had played the Palace, you were at the top. And Eddie Cantor began a very, very long career in the 1910s and wound up as a Ziegfeld star. His first Ziegfeld show was in 1917. And when he wasn't performing for Ziegfeld and making films, that was a little bit later, he was playing the Palace and the Keith Orpheum circuit around the country. He became a huge radio star in the early 30s and, you know, went on and on and made the transition to television. But here he is. 1925, singing a comic song called Row, Row, Rosie. Where the ocean breezes play, Rosie met a lad one day. He invited her to take a row. As he jumped into the boat, someone handed her a note, and it read, here's something you should know. He is just a little sailor chic Takes a different girlie out each week If he gets too sentimental Row, row, Rosie Rosie, row for the shore Even though he's sweet and gentle Row, row, Rosie Don't let him rock the boat It's mighty hard to float Out on the ocean A kiss in the dark Sometimes is worse than the bite of a shark. So let your conscience be your guide and row, row, Rosie, Rosie, row for the shore. Rosie's tender heart was stirred as she read each little word. It was just like music to her ear. She had longed to meet a sheep who was not afraid to speak. It had been her dream for many years. Rosie rose, but not towards the shore. She forgot those words forevermore. If he gets too sentimental, row, row, Rosie. Rosie, row for the shore. Even though he's sweet and gentle, row, row, Rosie. No use to shout or squawk. You can't get out and walk. You may be youthful and chock full of hope, but you won't float, you're not ivory soap. My brother was a sailor once, so row, row, Rosie, Rosie, row for the shore. Too brave, it's much better to weep. 
many brave hearts are asleep in the deep. My brother was a sailor once, so row, row, row thee, row thee, row for the shore. Well, what's the hurry? What's the hurry? Where are you going? Are you speaking to me? You're speaking to me. Are you speaking to me? Yes, I was going to ask you to have something to eat. Well, who frightened you? Well, uh, where have you been? Shopping? No, Margie and I went to matinee. We went to matinee. Oh, I was mad over it. We went to the matinee. Just you and Margie? No, I met a lovely fellow in the lobby. He was fussy, but he was a lovely fellow. Was he a New York boy or something? No, else? he was a college boy. He wasn't a college. He was a college boy. Well, how do you know? He had a Yale lock in his pocket. <laughs> So you must have had a wonderful trip to Europe last night. Oh, summer. I'm glad. I'm glad you asked me. And some very thrilling... Oh, you don't know the half of it, dearie. You don't know the half of it. Tell me of, of some of your experiences. Oh, right? listen, you know, one night when the ship was in mid-ocean, it stopped. Yes? Just then the captain came along, and Mark said, what's the matter? Mark. And the captain said the rudders broke. Well, and I'll never forget Marjorie by this <laughs> Go on, the captain said the rudder's broken. What did Margie say? Margie says, that's all right, it's underneath. Nobody will notice it. <laughs> well, I'll bet you had lots and lots of fun on deck. Oh, every on. night we get in deck and tell stories. Yeah. And you know, the captain told us about a man who once took his wife out in a boat and threw her overboard. Well, he was a brute. He said every time she'd come up, he'd hit her over the head of the yard. Oh. Every time she'd come up, he'd hit her. Oh, my. Now, Never forget Marjorie. Thank heaven I was heavily veiled. Go on. She said that every time she came up, he hit her over the head with the oar. And what did Margie say? Margie says she was a fool to come up. <laughs> I bet you met lots of interesting people on yes, the boat. Yes, but Marge ruined the whole party. She ruined the whole party. How did she do it? Sunday morning in the music room, she's playing a rag on the piano. Well, she should have known better. And some minister said, Miss... Don't you know the Ten Commandments? And? Now, you, you know it. I, you know, you know. <laughs> Come on, the minister says, don't you know the Ten Commandments? And what did Margie say? Margie says, whistle the first three or four bars and I'll follow you. <laughs> well, uh, did you get seasick? I didn't, but Margie did. Well, I sympathize. Oh, I felt sorry for her. Oh, oh they give her everything but the anger to keep her quiet. Well, no wonder. It's a oh, when we get off the boat, we had to take a taxi. Everybody thought she was drinking. Yeah. Heaven knows we just had a few harmless nips. Just a few harmless nips. Well, what made them think she was drinking? Well, she stepped in one door of the taxi and fell out the other. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she said, how much do I owe you? Now we're getting a little obscure. That was Savoy and Brennan, a very popular vaudeville act for several years. Uh, Bert Savoy, who was the main comedian, was actually struck by lightning uh, at Jones Beach in 1923, thus ending the act. He was killed. Uh, but he had achieved fame as Biddy, uh, the Irish girl in Boston. Uh, obviously, he was known as a female impersonator act where, you know, he would actually dress up as a woman and take on a woman's persona and was very successful at it. There were many, many acts such as this. Most famously, probably Julian Eltinge, who even had a theater named after him. Uh, the greatest 
female impersonator in Vaudeville. But Savoy and Brennan never really went on that long because the act broke up, at, like I said, in 1923. And this is their only known recording uh, that you just heard. You're probably never going to ever hear it again. In your- it was called uh, You Don't Know the Half of It. Obviously, sort of a truncated version of one of their famous acts. Now we're going to go even further back than that. Blanche Ring was a huge early vaudeville star. She she was born in the mid-1870s and played throughout the country, first in small parts, and debuted um, in 1902 in a show called Tom Rot. And she went on and on from there, the Jersey Lily at the Victoria Theater in 1903, the Lovebirds. She she did a, a, a vaudeville act where she sang many songs from her shows and performed at the Palace Theater as early as 1903. Not the Palace Theater that uh, we all know from, uh, for, you know, from the 42nd Street area, which opened up in 1903. 11, but this was another earlier version of the Palace Theater, also atop Keith Albee Vaudeville House. Here she is with probably her, her greatest known recording, I've Got Rings on My Fingers. Great summer call 
talk with baby It's unanimous now I was strong for baby He was you know how But he changed his maybe It's unanimous now Oh yes, my daddy and mother said okay Oh yes, my sister and brother yelled hooray Got the ring I prayed for Never mind just how Though it isn't paid for It's unanimous now Don't I look the part? It's that sweet, sweet heart of mine. Wouldn't guess me, couldn't guess me, never would agree. But that's all over, yes, sirree. You've got a way of petting that I love somehow. I've got a way of letting. It's unanimous now, and when he gets busy with his loving wow. Do we get dizzy? It's unanimous now. Oh, gee, and when he receives me on his knees, my good behavior just leads me by degrees. When I wanted low life, he would not allow. Now we sit with no lights. It's unanimous now. The future looks sunny and real good Oh yes, his father has money, so it's just I never thought of marriage But we take the ball, so little baby carriage It's unanimous now Francis Williams Lovely Francis Williams, who began in vaudeville in the early 1920s. By the time this recording was made in 1930, she had pretty much graduated from vaudeville and was singing in reviews and in other types of shows. She she actually uh, replaced Ethel Merman around 1941 in her big early show, Panama Hattie. But prior to that, she was in the George White scandal. She was in Artists and Models. She appeared in the Marx Brothers' first stage version of The Coconuts before the film was actually made. That's Frances Williams. You know, I know that I keep going uh, far back. That Blanche Ring recording that I played just prior to Francis William was actually from 1909. So, you know, we're going back to the very early years of the 20th century. And in those really early years, the people that were the most famous of that era, many of them anyway, were singing in reviews and performing in reviews by Weber and Fields. Weber and Fields were a duo 
comic duo. They did a what they called a Dutch comedy act. They began performing together in the 1890s, and they went on and on. In the early 20th century, their shows were the biggest shows and some of the first real variety musicals that were ever to appear on Broadway. They were one of the first acts that really got by on their routine of sort of mangling the the English accent, you know, with their dialect. And, you know, they were poor Jewish immigrants and their partnership went on and on. I mean, they, they were appearing together, as I said, in the 1890s, early 1890s, and they really performed together until the 1930s, an incredibly long career. But prior to that, shows like Hurley Burley, The Whirly Gig, uh, Pussy, Hokey Pokey. They, they, I mean, they sound absurd, but they were the hit shows of Broadway. And here is a recording of Weber and Fields, very late in their career. It was made in 1932. They kept going, as I said. And this is just one of their routines. You'll get an idea of what an act like this sounded like at the very early years of the 20th century because they never really changed their act, just some of the routines. Weber and Fields. <laughs> Hello, Mike. Come on, hurry up. We've only got a few minutes to miss the train to New Haven. Yeah, by where are we going? New Haven, you dumb skull. Didn't I already told you? We're going to see my boy Louie up in jail. Oh, my, I'm so sorry. That was such a nice boy. What did they put him in jail for? <laughs> Don't you got no brains? He ain't in jail to jail. He's in jail to college. Yeah, well, how long did he get? Well, didn't I just explain to you? He didn't get. He's a sophomore in college. Well, then why do you let him stay there? Why don't you take him home if he's sophomore more in college? <laughs> he's one of the most populated boys in college. He lives in the maternity house. Now, ain't that too bad? It's a great honor. <laughs> he was tapped for it. Well, did it cure him? He never was sick. He's as strong like a cow. My Louis is a feet player. He's a halfback on the scrub team. Oh, he's got to scrub the team. That's a nice, clean job. I didn't say he's got to scrub the team. Sure, you said he got to scrub half the back. Why don't he scrub his whole back and make a clean job of it? <laughs> he don't scrub half his back. That's the name for his job. Oh, he's got a job. <laughs> That's something new in your family, ain't it? <laughs> what is your Louis studying in the college? He's studying to be a coach. Oh, a coach like a carriage. Didn't you never hear from the coach what trains the football team? Yeah, a railroad coach. Not a railroad coach, a football coach. A football coach gets more money than the president of the college. He learns the seatballers how they should play. <laughs> My Louis is the best halfback on the team. Supposing. If he was a girl, that would be different. But in a boy, what difference does it make what kind of a back he's got? <laughs> That's the name from his job. Let me explain the rules. Feetball is the game what's played in a bowl. Oh, I know, bowling. Not bowling, you dumb skull. Feetball, they play in a bowl. A bowl of what? A bowl of nothing. Just a bowl what they play in. In this bowl, they can seat 80,000 people. 80,000? Yeah. All right, have a jove. So they got to play it in a bowl. Only in shale they play it in the bowl. In Flintstein, they play it in the studium. Yeah, well, what is that, a studium? Studium is the same as the bowl, only it's more like the Polish ground. A studium is where the students from the college play football. Now, I'll make you an explanation from the rules. All right, go ahead. Now, now, you see. Now, pay attention and you won't understand nothing. On one side from the field is the Flintstein. Oh, yeah, I know him. Who do you know? Flintstein. He got a delicatessen store on Toy Avenue. Did I say something about delicatessen? 
Prince signs at the college. Like the Shale, like the Harvard, like the University for the men. Oh, you mean that Prince sign? Oh, well, that's a difference. Now we're ready to start. You're the Prince Science and I'm the Shale. Wait a minute. I want to be the anniversary for Maine. It can't be did. They ain't in this game. Well, if I can't be the anniversary for Maine, then I wouldn't play. You wouldn't? Oh, my gracious. There goes our train. Oh, my gracious. Well, oh, hurry up. Let's run after it. Maybe we can catch it. Who this ain't the Long Island Railroad. Well, what are we going to do about it? We'll have to change our itinerary. I can't do it, Meyer. Why not? Because I only brought the pair I have on. Weber and Fields reprising their Mack and Meyer routine, even riding the Long Island Railroad in 1932. They had been doing a routine with that, you know, that set of characters for at least 40 years at that point. I, I hate to admit it, but I remember a television show that I used to watch when I was a kid, Mack and Meyer for Hire. And now that I think of it, the two characters were based upon the Weber and Fields, Mike and Meyer characters. And at the very least, it shows you how their influence went on and on and on into the 1960s, the early 1960s. Well, folks, that about wraps it up for this week's episode of American Grooves Radio Hour, where we've been listening to some recordings of the early vaudeville years, the variety artists that made vaudeville right before the talking films, right before radio, and way before television. And, you know, uh, as I said, Variety was number one on the vaudeville stage. And I think it's appropriate that I leave you with one of the great whistling acts of the day. Now, this recording was actually made in 1901. This man made a career and a very good living as a whistler. And here is Mr. Joe Belmont in 1901, whistling his little heart out. Hear you next time, folks. Good night. to you weekly on WLIW-FM Southampton, 88.3 on your radio dial, and at WLIW.org, and all streaming formats. 